0: But well, during the month of October, we have been talking about the men and the events of the Protestant Reformation. And we've already talked about John Wycliffe and John Huss. And today, we're going to talk about one of the solas that I believe is the hallmark of the Reformation. All the solas developed over time, Uh, The earliest phrases were sola gratia, which is by grace alone, and sola fide, by faith alone, and sola scriptura, by scripture alone. But sola fide was used by Martin Luther in his translation of Galatians 3. He also used it in his lectures on Galatians. And this is the sola that Paul referred to in Romans 1.17, the last part of it, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4, which says this, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther had a lot of problems with that verse because he didn't understand whose righteousness and whose faith. It really leads to two questions out of this speaking of righteousness and faith. But he did say that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. In fact, the article is so important that Luther also said, if we lose it, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy because it is the article that answers the question... What must I do to be saved? Now, the Roman Catholic Church required the continued performance of good works in order to be saved. In fact, they said in their catechism, number 837, and I quote, Even though incorporated into the church, one who does not, however, persevere in charity is not saved. End quote. They say that other works that one must perform to keep his salvation, one of them, according to Article 1257, is baptism. Another one is Article 1129, which talked about the various sacraments. And if you study anything about Roman Catholicism, you'd also have to add the keeping of the Ten Commandments. Catholic theology views justification as an infusion of grace. And that is what makes the sinner righteous. So in Catholic theology then, the ground of justification is something made good within the sinner. It's not the imputed righteousness of Christ. At the Council of Trent... Rome had a response to the Reformation. They pronounced an anathema, which is a curse on anyone who says that the sinner is justified by faith alone. They say if this means nothing else is required by way of cooperation in the acquisition of the grace of justification, you and I, It's really the other way around. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. If you bring a different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And that's what Rome does. Rome brings a different gospel. And we've been saying it about Rome because this is the backdrop to the Reformation. But we need to understand about this doctrine, this teaching of sola fide, this teaching of justification by faith alone. As Martin Luther also said, it's the first and the highest, it's the most precious of all good works, that is, faith in Christ. That's the most precious. John Calvin said, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Martin Lloyd-Jones adds, if there has been one word that stood out more prominently, especially in the history of Protestantism, oh, he's got a word I can't say, that any other, it has been this great word justification. I can say that word. Let me give you a definition. Justification is God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and accounting them righteous freely by His grace through faith in Christ on the ground not of their own works but of the representative law-keeping and redemptive blood-shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. Let me say that again. Justification is God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and accounting them righteous freely by His grace through faith in Christ on the ground not of their own works but of the representative law-keeping and redemptive blood-shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He said, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. Now there are three terms that I want you to look at that's in those two verses. And if you haven't already, let me have you to turn to Romans chapter 3. And again, look at verses 24 and 25. The first term... It's found in verse 24, and it's in the phrase, being justified. Naturally, we would start there, because that's what we're talking about today. You hear sola fide, you're hearing justification by faith alone. There are no works to be added to it. It's all because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I cannot do anything to merit salvation. Rome never got that and still doesn't get it today. They believe that through all their sacraments that that is part of attaining or acquiring salvation, but you have to maintain these sacraments to keep it. What a miserable life that that would lead to. If I am responsible for my salvation, and even greater than that, if I am responsible for keeping myself in the love of God, I am a man most miserable. See, the fact is that sinners have to be justified, and that illustrates a huge problem that we have. Because that says to us that we are sinners. And I don't say that lightly. Scriptures teach that all have sinned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that really describes our life majority of the time, doesn't it? Even in Christ, we fall short. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. In case you were wondering that about your neighbor, there's your answer right there. It's the fact is he needs to know that. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Well that paints the picture right there. We don't have some kind of goodness infused in us. We're wretched. We're wretched sinful people. And apart from the work of Christ in our life, we're hell-bound. All of us. Not even one could be saved apart from the work of Jesus. See, the righteousness that God requires, sinners cannot provide. We have nothing good in us. The only righteousness man possesses or attains within himself is unrighteousness, because that is the character, and that is the substance of fallen nature. Isaiah described it, In Isaiah 64, 6, where he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. But it's the light of righteousness that comes only from above, and that's why you and I needed to be born again, born from above. So the righteousness that God requires is that which he alone gives. And before we look further at this, let me just say this, that justification is not pardon. It's not pardon. Justification is a legal declaration. It it is a forensic declaration. And Forensics has to do with judicial judgment or judicial declarations. Charles, Charles Hodge said it this way, that justification, instead of being an efficient act changing the inward character of the sinner. It's a declarative act, announcing and determining his relation to the law and justice of God. R.C. Sproul said, If we define forensic justification as a legal declaration by which God declares a person just, and we leave it at that, we would have no dispute between Roman evangelicalism. Though Rome has... A deep seated feeling of dislike to the concept of forensic justification. And this atopy is directed against the Protestant view of it. You see, forensic justification, that is God's declaration that all the demands of the law are fulfilled on behalf of the believing sinner through. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this declaration actually changes our judicial standing as sinners before God. And so what we're seeing in justification, what we're seeing in sola fide, is that God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer's account, and then He declares the redeemed as one who is fully righteous. As I said, none of us gets there on our own. None of us can make that declaration. It's God who does it. There are six different aspects of justification in the New Testament. The Bible says that we are justified by grace. That means we do not deserve it. The Bible says that we are justified by faith and that means that we have to receive it by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are justified by blood and that refers to the price that our Savior paid in order that we might be justified. And the Bible says that we are justified by power and it's the same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible says that we are justified by God. He is the one who reckons us righteous. And then, of course, the Bible says that we are justified by works. And this was an area that Luther had a trouble with. He called the book of James a straw man. But he misunderstood what James was trying to say. We're not meaning that good works earn justification, but that they are the evidence that we have been justified. See, when he was reading Paul and he saw the term justification by faith, and then he reads over in James and he sees the same phrase, justification by faith, he didn't seem to realize that Paul was saying that before God were justified by faith, and James was saying before men were justified by works. So when the believing sinner is justified, when he is given the righteousness of Jesus, who fulfilled every aspect of the law, he's declared righteous. And again, J.I. Packer says, justification is God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and accounting them righteous, freely by His grace, through faith in Christ, on the ground not of their own works, but of the representative law-keeping and redemptive blood-shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You have to tear out pages from the Bible to say that you're saved any other way. And to say that you're saved by any other way minimizes the sacrifice of Christ. It makes it of no effect, of no purpose. He died in vain. And let me tell you this, beloved, God does nothing in vain. Everything God does is with purpose, and it's after His own counsel. It's after the counsel of His will by which He operates. So, according to the work of Christ, and our faith in the work and person of Christ, We are justified. Notice the second word. He says, being justified is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And the second word is redemption. Being justified as a gift by His grace is only possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption... Apolotrusis, it comes from two compound words, or one compound word, but it's broken up into two words. It comes from apo, apo which means from, and latruo which means to redeem. So it means to redeem from. And if you look at it more specifically, it means to, to let go free for a ransom. It's translated release in Hebrews 11.35. The word was commonly used to paying a ransom to free a prisoner, freeing them from his captives, or paying the price to free a slave from his master. The Lord Jesus Christ bought us back from the slave market of sin. And His precious blood was the ransom price which paid to satisfy the claims of a holy and righteous God. Let me read some passages that talk about that. 1 Corinthians one thirty. This is one you might want to underline in your Bible. Though if you're like me, that after I came to Christ and I got my first Bible, if you see it today... I underlined almost every verse because I couldn't discern which one to underline and which one not to underline. And I said, it's all good, so I started underlining everything. <laughs> I have an underlined Bible. <laughs> but if you were looking at my notes, you would see certain emphasis that I place on certain words. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 is this, "...by His doing." You see that? A lot of times we read 1 Corinthians and we miss this verse, but it says, "...by His doing you are in Christ Jesus." Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and what else? Redemption. He's our redemption. He's our Savior. But it's by His doing, not by ours. Ever in 1 Corinthians 6:20, it says, You have been bought with a price. There was a price paid for your redemption. And Christ paid it. says it again in first corinthians seven twenty three You were bought with a price. The sacrifice of Christ was costly. It cost him everything. And what's it going to cost you? everything to follow him? Acts twenty and verse twenty eight Paul said to the elders at Ephesus be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There was a purchase price, and it was the blood of Christ. And the life is in the blood. You remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were told not to eat blood because the life was in it. I told you I like my steaks like that. In fact, that day I said that, I went home and cooked one on the grill and it looked just like it when I was done. You can ask me one day why I eat it like that. I have a reason. But, the purchase price was the blood of Christ. That's the meaning of redemption. We have been bought out of the slave market of sin. So justified... Redemption, what's the third word? Well, it's found in verse 25. The third word is propitiation. The redemption or the payment that Jesus made on our behalf was an appeasement to God. We could say then that propitiation means to satisfy the demands of justice. And you know, none of us could satisfy it. Only God could satisfy His own law and His own command. Uh, the, the standard's too high. I mean, even when Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, to the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples were present, the crowds were present, He says, you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Unattainable. But that's the standard. And if anything, the Ten Commandments show that being unattainable as well because all the Ten Commandments can do and reveal to us is how we fall short there are people out there today that are trying to do what they can to appease God they do it with trying to live a good life and there's nothing wrong with living a good life but if you're using that to get you to heaven that ain't going to happen doing good things good deeds helping people those are good But that's not going to get you to heaven. It's not based upon your goodness. It's not based upon your righteousness. It's based upon Christ's goodness and Christ's righteousness. Again, if it's not based upon Him, and you have something to do with this, then there was no need for Christ to come. There was no need for God the Father to send His Son to die on behalf of sinners. But just by the very fact that he did come, the very fact that he did die on the cross, and the very fact that he resurrected from the grave shows that God accepted his sacrifice. There are people all over the Philippines, every Easter, they're out there crucifying themselves and putting themselves on trees, and they're beating themselves, and all of that, all to appease God. And they can do that from day in, uh, year in, and it's never going to happen. Never. Never. You and I can't do anything to merit the grace and the salvation of God. God freely bestowed it on us. We talk about love. The love of God in doing this. I mean, think of it this way. We have His Word. His Word gives us His law. His Word gives us His standard. The standard is so high that you and I cannot meet its demands, and so only God Himself could do that. Only God could appease himself. I mean, you look back at all the history of blood sacrifices. They kept having to do the sacrifices over and over. You know, the interesting thing was that the night of the Passover, right before they came and arrested Jesus in the garden and took him to the kangaroo court that they threw at night, which was a violation of their own law, it says that he crossed over the Kidron Valley when he went toward the garden, when he crossed over that, he would have seen the blood flowing in the river of the millions of lambs that were slain on Passover. And that vivid reminder would be to him of what he was about to do. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People today are looking for different ways to appease God, different ways to make themselves right with God, and they go everywhere except for where they need to go. And that's to Christ. He is the only one who could satisfy the holy and righteous demands of a just God and a just law. He's the only one who could provide redemption and justification and propitiation. He's the only one who could satisfy the demands of justice. In fact, when we look at this in biblical terms and we talk about propitiation, we have to understand that it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. Uh, Hold your place right there and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Usually in John chapter 3, we think of a couple things. Number one, Nicodemus. Then we think of verse 16, which is a verse we all learned when we were little. But do we realize verse 18? Verse 18 says, He who believes, used in the present tense, talks about ongoing belief. He who continues to believe in him is not judged. But he who does not continue to believe has been judged already because he has not continued to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, our ability to continue to believe is because God's given us his righteousness. God's given us the principle of new life, eternal life. But yet, if you do not believe, he says you're judged already. In other words, the verdict has been given, the only thing left is the sentence. The punishment itself. And no wonder Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said in that sermon that sinners are dangling from a spider's web. At any moment, they could drop right into hell. So true. Because apart from Christ, you're hellbound. Apart from Christ, you are going to hell. It's just a matter of when. Not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When are you going to leave this life? And everyone is banking on the fact that we're going to get much older until we die. Or we're going to do something incredible with our life before we die. But all of that, Is garbage. Because none of us knows when we're going to die. Even when the doctor, and I don't agree with doctors doing this, but they do this, and they tell a patient that you have X amount of time to live. They're not God. They're not God. There have been people that have been told they've had two weeks to live and they live two months or two years. understand what they're doing. Getting you ready for that. But for some people that hear that information, totally give up. Beloved, I believe while you are fine and healthy and prosperous, or however you want to say it in your life, doing good, and prosperity is not always talking about money, now, is when you make the preparations. See, I used to work for a funeral home. You know what I did? I did what people don't want to do, talk about dying. So I would go to your house and talk to you about when you're going to die, what is going to happen with your body, what's going to happen for your family, what does your family need to do now before this happens? Because if you wait until it happens, this is what we phrase as emotional overspending. If you've ever been in a funeral home and you have to go pick out a casket, the most expensive caskets are at the front. I know you probably didn't know any of this and didn't know you were going to know about it today. But the fact is, is that people do all kinds of things but they do not make preparation for eternity. That's the most important. Yes, it's important for me as a father and as a husband to make sure my family is taken care of, make sure all of our debts are paid, I don't leave our family in debt or any kind of problems like that. Make sure that they're well taken care of so that when I leave, there's no interruption in their provision. That's preparation. We have it, too. We call it, what, a retirement plan, right? You plan for that day when you can retire, you can cease working the current job you're in and the current hours you're working, and you have something to live on, and you also have some kind of insurance. We call it life insurance. So that when that time comes, you have the resources to take care of your loved one or your loved one to take care of you. But since we usually don't think about this stuff ahead of time and pre-plan it, we give that option, or I should say obligation, to the family. And we let the family decide. You know, it's much better now to talk about it. I mean, I know who I want to preach my funeral. I know a lot of things now, and I've written those things down and have a place for them that my wife knows about. But when it comes to eternal matters, why don't we prepare for that? And you and I have prepared for it. Because we've been justified by faith in Christ. That's the most important preparation you need to make. Because no one knows the hour of their death. God actually places sin and evil under His judgment. And He decrees that He is going to pour out His wrath upon it. In New Testament terms, what we are actually saved from, or I could say who we are actually saved from, is God. We are saved by God and from God from the wrath that is to come. Remember Matthew chapter 3 when the religious leaders came to observe the baptism of John? You Remember what John said to them? You brood of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. He told them about the wrath that is to come. He gave them the proper reason why they needed to repent. See, if you tell people good news and never talk about bad news, they have the wrong reason to come to Christ. We are saved by God and from God and from the wrath that is to come. And so when you think about propitiation, propitiation actually satisfies completely the demands of God's wrath and His justice which is what the cross was all about. That's what you're looking at when you're looking at the cross. You're looking at the judgment of God being poured out on Christ in full fury. I don't know if you wear a cross around your neck. But for the New Testament believer, a cross was an instrument of death. And they understood that. And so when Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Taking up that cross was taking up that instrument of death and realizing that the cross is a symbol of God's wrath being poured out on Christ. He took as our substitute what we deserved. He took it for us. All of us were on death row. He stepped in and took the punishment for our crime and released us from death row. So He is our substitute. took upon Himself the wrath that we deserve to pay because of our sin. That's really something that he did on a vertical level. Something with respect to the Father, satisfying the justice of God for us. When you look at the book of Romans, the first three chapters puts the sinner under the wrath of God. Jesus appeased that wrath by dying on the cross for our sin. And so therefore his sacrifice satisfied the justice of a holy God and a righteous law. So it's through his offering of himself. That we have the wrath of God averted. And mercy can be shown on the basis of an acceptable sacrifice. We couldn't do that. Only Jesus could. Remember, He's God. You're not. Neither am I. So anything that we could offer to God is tainted by our own sinfulness. And when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, it reveals that God had accepted His sacrifice of Himself for our sin. And therefore, when you hear in Acts 2.32, it says, This Jesus God raised up again, to whom we are all witnesses. God raised Him up. So we have those beautiful words of justification, justification, redemption, propitiation. Now I want us to consider consider what it means when we look at all those terms and what implication it has on our life as a child of God. What does it mean? Well, it means this. Our salvation is eternal because Christ and His work is eternal. When Jesus died on the cross, remember what He said? Right before He gave up His Spirit, He said, Tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished. The work of redemption, the work of bearing sin, the work of bearing the wrath of God on Himself was finished. It was completed. Never to repeat it again. You know, it's interesting when you look in the Old Testament at the tabernacle and later the temple, you know, one of the things that's missing in both of those situations was a chair. There was no place to sit. And I think that's emblematic to tell us that in the tent and in the the temple and so forth, that when they went in there to offer the sacrifices, they were never completed. They were never finished. And again, going back to all the millions of lambs that would have been sacrificed on that Passover leading up to Christ being the ultimate Passover would show us that all of those lambs, all of those sacrifices could not appease a holy God. But what Jesus did in offering Himself as God did. And that's why He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His work was perfect. Never again to be repeated. And it satisfied God. It appeased a holy and righteous God. No wonder that the Bible refers to our salvation as everlasting in Isaiah 45, 17, or as eternal, Mark 16, 20. It's forever. Our salvation's forever. Praise God, right? Our sin has been dealt with, never to be dealt with again. In terms of whether God forgives us or not. Our forgiveness is based upon Christ. In Christ we have forgiveness. No wonder Paul refers to our salvation as eternal glory. Second Timothy 2.10 But we also hear it in that very simple verse that I was referring to, to a moment ago. And as John 3.16. Because he calls it eternal life. And how he helps us to understand eternal life, at least in that verse, is that he tells us that we shall not perish. And when we look at that term, that term means that we will never be destroyed. Or as D.A. Carson puts it, we will never be doomed to destruction see to perish is to receive God's final and eternal judgment and that will never happen for us because we are in Christ John three sixteen says whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life You ask the question, what's eternal life? Some people answer, well, it's a length of time. But see, we have to understand with God, there is no length of time. You and I operate on time. We need a beginning and we have an ending. But there is none of that with God. I know you read in 2 Peter 2, it talks about a thousand years is like one day to God. It's not like that to us, right? Right? One of the things that I... One of my weaknesses in my life is waiting. I struggle with waiting in so many aspects of my life, you know. And then when I go to the doctor, guess where I get to sit? In a waiting room. It's the last place on earth I want to sit. But this verse in John three sixteen, when you look back, and he gives us one definition here of not perishing. Uh, that That's not all of it. There are actually... 15 different references in the gospel of John to that term eternal life in essence uh, we're really talking about the believer's participation in the ever eternal and everlasting life of Jesus and it's talking about our union with him like Romans 5:21 says so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this grace reigns because of the righteousness of Christ, and it reigns to eternal life through Christ. So there is a quality there when we're talking about eternal life. It's not just length of time. Yes, we can say forever when we describe it. But we also have to talk about the quality of that life. For example, in Romans chapter 6, there are a number of verses, if you want to turn there, that I want to refer to. The first one is in verse 4. And again, keep in mind this quality of life. It says, therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So here's, here's our quality of life here. It's a newness of life. Look down at verse 11. It says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So another aspect of this is the fact that we are now alive to God. We're no longer dead, or as Ephesians 2.1 would say, dead in trespasses and sins. Look at verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we talk about a newness of life. We talk about being alive to God. And we're talking about this all because this is in Christ. Other verses would be 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Which says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. They're emphasizing again the fact that we have new life within us. And therefore, since we have that, Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We're new creations in Christ. And therefore, if that's talking about this quality of life that we possess as eternal life, then that's going to be seen, it's going to be evident, it's going to be visible in our life as being those who have been justified by faith in Christ. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Listen, if you want Christ, it's going to cost you your entire life. It's going to cost you everything about you. Your will, your passions, your dreams. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. You have to be willing to exchange your life for his life. If you're holding on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for the sake of Christ you're going to gain it. And look at what you gain. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17:3. And here's his definition. He says, "This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." What was the first thing that you realized happened when God saved you? Some might say, I've been forgiven now, of all my sin. Know what I realized? Everything was new. Everything. Not just my standing before God, not just my status now before God as justified and forgiven and redeemed. But everything was new. I had a new awareness of God that I didn't have. I had a, an awareness and an understanding of His Word. And I'm not saying total understanding. Don't misunderstand me. There's so much here we don't understand. Eternal life... According to Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, we're talking about the life of the age to come. And we're talking about how believers will most fully experience it in the perfect, unending glory and joy of heaven. Again, John three sixteen: Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have, but possess this eternal life which Jesus defined as knowing God. And then it has a guarantee to those who possess eternal life that they will never perish. See, genuine salvation can never be lost. True believers will divinely be preserved and they will faithfully persevere. Two things always going on in your life where you're divinely preserved and you are faithfully persevering. Let me just break those two down. First, you'll be divinely preserved. John six thirty-seven and following. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the doctrine of irresistible grace, by the way. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. There's your security in your salvation. God's not going to cast you out. Jesus is not going to cast you out. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. We are gifts from the Father to Christ, according to John 6. And all that the Father has given to Christ, He loses none. You and I are gifts to Christ. He divinely keeps us. He preserves us as it says in First Peter chapter 1, that we are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Or you may be familiar with John ten twenty seven and following. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you can't understand how secure your salvation is by that passage right there, then Jesus is lying. Or you and I are fools for not believing it. Romans 5.9 says that having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Again, you're being saved from God and by God and saved from His wrath. And that's what's happening in Christ. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death unto life. How is that possible? Well, that's only possible because of the sacrifice of Christ you trust in anyone or anything else, you do not have salvation. And you do not have a declaration like Romans 8.1 that says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't get a no condemnation status outside of Christ. As we read in John 3.18, you're condemned already. Listen to it this way in Romans 8. I'm going to begin at verse 29. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Do you you see the divine hand right there? I, I mean, look at that. I read it pretty quickly, but He predestines us? He calls us, He justifies us, and He glorifies us. Who's doing all this? God is. And that's why Paul could say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? I mean, really. If God is not condemning, no one else matters. Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Will your own disobedience separate you from the love of Christ? He says, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from Him. Only He can separate you from Himself. That should be blissful encouragement. You know? I mean, yeah, we always talk about the ugly side of sin, and we have to to understand the beautiful side of the gospel. Just how beautiful the gospel really is. And how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim it. I'm sorry I had to say that. Ephesians 1. Listen to what he says here. In him, this is verse 13, you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with the view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You were given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Erebon, the down payment of future glory. The fact that God gives us His Holy Spirit is a foretaste of glory divine. We're told in Ephesians 4.30 also that we were sealed for the day of redemption. We're sealed. And you got thinking about that word sealed. That was an official mark. It was an official identification. God gives us His Holy Spirit as an official identification that we belong to Him. And that He has promised us eternal life and He's promised us heaven. And as I said of eternal life, it's also talking about a quality of life. So it begins the moment you get saved. But when they would use seals for various things, like whether it was on a letter, whether it was on a contract, whether it was on an important document, this was an official mark of identification. And when that document was sealed with that hot wax and that signet of whoever it was that was sealing it, it was officially identifying that it came with the authority of the one who sealed it. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit by God Himself. You know, we see that used in various places in the Bible, like in the Old Testament when Daniel was thrown into that den of lions. Remember, they they sealed the lid so that no one could... Remove the lid, except for the king himself. When Jesus was put in the tomb, Matthew 27 66 says that they set a seal on the stone. So the only one that could open up that tomb was the one who put the seal on it, and that was Rome. But guess what? God broke the seal. We are divinely kept, but we also persevere. And that's because of the principle of eternal life in us. You know, even though that we have been forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future, and as far as the cross is concerned, all of our sin is future, there still is within us, because of the principle of eternal life, the desire not to sin. Because some people think, well, if I've been forgiven of all my sin, it's future, then I can just go out and sin. Willfully sin and just live it up. Well, Paul had a word for that. Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What did he say? May again God forbid. How should we who have died to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We have a new life. We're new people. We're not the same persons that we used to be. Again, as a result of that, we persevere. Matthew 10:22 says you're going to be hated by all because of my name. Here he's talking to the disciples, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. We are those who will endure to the end. There's some days when you feel like you might not. There's some days when you feel like things are getting really tough and you're right at the edge and you almost want to say I can't bear this anymore and then boom, it's over. You endured. Matthew twenty four thirteen, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Luke eight fifteen, when it talks about the condition of the soils, when Jesus was talking about the sower went out and sowed seed, and, and he was telling us about the condition of the soils is like the conditions of the heart, and the seed is like the gospel as it's thrown and it lands on different hearts. Luke eight fifteen, Jesus said, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. We're divinely kept, but we also persevere because of the principle of eternal life in us, because we have been justified by faith in Christ. See how it's all tied together? Hebrews 3.6 talks about persevering. He says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14, we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hebrews 10.39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. See how beautiful all those terms are? We've been justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus and God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Three terms that, divide, that describe our divine salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. No other way. If you think there's any other way, then you didn't come the right way. You took the wide gate that leads to destruction instead of the narrow gate that leads to life. It's only in Christ that a sinner can be declared righteous. And it's only in this life that 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 occurs. If you die without Christ, you go into hell. Without Christ, without any hope, And it's permanent. So beloved. You know. I give the same appeal at the end. Each time. But I think all throughout the message. There's opportunities. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear what he has done. And why he did it. And how he did it. And the fact that you and I. We contribute nothing but the sin that made Him do it. That's all we contribute to our salvation, is our sin. And I praise God, He's had mercy on us. Aren't you? I do not deserve His mercy. I deserve His wrath. And so do you. Praise God for His grace this morning. Let's praise Him now as we pray. Father, we just praise you this morning for your eternal salvation in Christ. Thank you for the righteousness that we now possess from Christ. Thank you for the faith we possess because of Christ. Thank you for the repentance that you gave us because of Christ. Or thank you for all these things. My prayer is that everyone knows you, the one true God. And everyone commits their life to you. Thank you for what you've made us and what you're continuing to make us. That work that you begun in us, you'll complete it at the day of Christ. And we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray.